Father, Lord, we, uh, we do thank you, Lord, that we can come together and meet this morning and learning your word. And Lord, we do uh, pray for the saints around the world that don't always have fellowship. Lord, we do pray and lift them up. We ask that they would also find the means of grace and fellowship and that, Lord, you would uh, comfort them, be with them. Um, Lord, we pray for our military. We ask for protection upon them. We ask that you deliver the enemy into their hands. We pray for our governing officials, for wisdom. And, uh, Lord, we ask that everything we would say and do would be pleasing in your sight, that you would help equip us with the word, regenerate hearts, and equip the saints for battle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a section that I entitled Learning to Set Our Minds on Things Above. And if you recall the last time we were in Colossians, I guess it was just last week, we were looking at how superior Christ was to self-made religion. And so in light of those theological concepts, we are now going to be turning to some application, although there's a lot of theology even in this section So I've got a lot of verses out there, so I'm going to just dive straight in and give you kind of a a synopsis or an outline of where we're going to be going. So let me show you. It's a three-part outline. First of all, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and we'll cover that section this morning, it talks about our association with Christ and our resulting affections. So because we are with Christ, we have affections that are godly and for Him. And then in verses 5 through 11, we're going to see our dissociation with the world or from the world and our resulting hatred of the things of the world. That would be ungodly things and sin. And then the third section, and we won't get to this this time. In fact, we won't get past verse 7. But in Colossians 3, 12 through 4, 6, we're going to talk about our association with Christ and then our new character, the character that's expected of Christians. Okay? So that's where we're going to be going. That's how this section lays out. Now, first of all, we're going to talk about the fact that we have been raised already. And remember, when we talk about being raised already, we're not talking about some mystical raising. We're not talking about some mystical union with Christ. But what we're talking about is positionally, God considers us raised with Christ, just as he considers us dead in Christ the moment that we trusted in him. And so that's where we pick it up in the first uh, two verse or first verse here Colossians 3 1 Paul writes this he says therefore if you have been raised up with Christ keeps seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God now I'm going to show you how this actually links back earlier into Colossians 2 and you see where I have highlighted the term if there's a connection because here in Colossians 2 20 it also gives us an if and it's a a un, if then. Okay, it's what's called a protasis. It's if this, then that. That's the sort of idea you get. Now, I goofed this whole thing up, though, and I have to, I just caught it this morning because, let me point this out. This un isn't in Colossians 2.20. It is here in 3.1, but this un means then. Okay, so in other words, it's here, but it's not in this passage. It's actually a soon. Now, Okay, that's a sigma there. This is an omicron. This soon means with. So that has to do with association. So I'll talk about that. But anyway, I just wanted to clarify that in case you're opening your Greek text and you say, boy, he really botched it. I did. <laughs> okay, and now you can see why scribal mistakes are sometimes made. The omicron and the sigma are kind of similar. But let me read Colossians 2.20, and I'll explain the similarities here. Paul, remember back then, he said, if you have died with Christ to the stoichi of the world, 
Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? So notice the, the contrast here. If we have been raised with Christ, then he says, keep seeking. And by the way, that keep seeking, I'll talk about that in a minute, it's present tense, it's ongoing action. Why? Well, because we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. But look at Colossians 2.20, it says, if you have died with Christ uh, to the stoichia of the world, so remember the idea there is if we've died with Christ, we're associated with him. But who are we dissociated then with? We're disassociated from the stoichia. We no longer have any part with the demons. And so he says, well, then why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit to their decrees? That's the idea. Why? Because you're dead to the things of the stoichia. You're dead to the things of the demons. You shouldn't respond to those things anymore. You're dead. You're with Christ now. It's, it's a beautiful picture of a contrast. Now, let me just show you this keep seeking. This keep seeking, again, is in the present tense. And so notice we have been raised. Christ did that. In other words, God did that in the past. But in light of the fact that we've been raised with Christ in the heavenlies, now we should continuously, presently be seeking what? The things above, not the things that are below. Why? Because that's where our future is. That's where we are positionally. God has declared that that's where we are. Now, have we physically um, actually experienced that? No, but we will. It's an assured thing because God has placed his promise upon that. And we can, we can go to the bank on that. Um, I think I had some passages here. Who had... I'm going to talk about this idea of being raised up with Christ. You're going to see this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Whoever had that passage. Oh, Pat, that's right. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow, while we're yet dead in our trespasses, he raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. Wow, talk about grace. Talk about what God has done for us. You and I were dead men and women who all we did was, and I hate to use it again, but stink it up. We rotted in our sin and all we could do was do wretched, evil things that were opposite of God. Think of God being there. Being that we were dead in our trespasses, we were always going that direction. And yet he turned us supernaturally through the power of regeneration and he set us in the heavenly realm. That's exactly what's being stated here in Colossians 3.1. Now look at that term, keep seeking. I want to talk about that because what should we be seeking? Well, the things above. And this is a theme that obviously Jesus talked about in Matthew 6.33 and 6.20. But let me read Matthew 6.33. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, namely uh, earthly things. So if we are seeking the things in the heavenly realm, his righteousness, godliness, all the other things will be added unto us. Now, who had, by the way, the Matthew 6.20 passage? Oh, yeah. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wow. Thanks a lot. You know, we just had some break-ins up at our cabin 
recently, and it wasn't our cabin specifically, but it was a, it was a good reminder to me of this passage. And, you know, we look at the way the stock market has gone, and we look at all the uncertainties in our world, and this is a great passage to remember, where is our treasure really? It's certainly not here. And one of the battles we as rich American Christians, rich comparative to the rest of the world, um, this is a battle for us specifically, that we have to remember our treasure isn't here, it's in heaven. And I'll tell you, I am really guilty of this. It's not that I covet possessions. I am happy with, if I never got another thing, I'd be happy, okay? I love my fishing boat. But here's the problem. Here's how it works with me. I'll be at my cabin and I'll say, well, you know, if I could just string out a few more days, I could do a little bit more fishing. And I end up getting so caught up. And then I think, well, gosh, you know, if I got a new battery, I could troll longer. And you know, if I got a couple new lures and I get so into it and I think, well, can't this just be the millennial kingdom? (laughs) And I just love it, you know. But the thing is, is these things are passing away. You know, and I have to, it's, we're, we're on a mission to please God and to glorify Him, and that's where our treasure will be eternally. It shouldn't be down here. So the, the point is, we have a lot of good things as Americans in this life, but they're all passing away. And we have to be the people that are constantly reminding not only ourselves, but our neighbors as well. Um, so with that, let me move on then, and I'm going to point out a few other items that I think are, uh, we can glean from this passage. Um, and I'm going to make the uh, application here that we can determine from this passage that heaven is a real place. Now, let me show you how I, where my mind is going with this. Notice the phrase is, or the, the verb is. It's a verb of being. It comes from, this is the third person, uh, it would be the third person present active indicative of a me. Okay, so that a me has to do with, remember, ego a me, I am? It has to do with being. Okay, so notice where, let me read it again. It says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The point being is Christ is somewhere. He exists somewhere. And this should bring to mind, in my opinion, John 14, 3. Christ exists in the heavenly realm. It's a real place. Okay, now when we get to John 14, 3, remember this beautiful promise that he promises uh, his disciples and by extension us. He says, if I go... And prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, whoop, where, (laughs) I got the where first, where, by the way, is Hatan, so he's talking about where I am. Well, by the way, where was he going? It certainly wasn't to earth, was it? He was leaving earth, because remember, he is calming his disciples in lieu, or in light of the fact that he was going to be leaving, okay? So where he is going is... In fact, heaven, the heavenly realm. Okay, so that's where he's going. So he says, where I am, again, there's, uh, that would be a me. He says, you may be also. There's a future form of a me, be. So the point being, my friends, is this idea of being. Christ is somewhere. Where did he go to the heavenly realm? And he promised that when he made a place for us, he would one day come back. So that where we, that where he is, we may be there also. Notice he doesn't say that I'm coming back to be where you are. Right? Well, where are we? We're on earth. Well, he's going to bring us to be where he is. And where is he? Well, he's in the heavenly realm. So I think that this is a passage that not only shows us that heaven is a real place, but I think it gives us some indication of a pre, or a, a, let's say this, it excludes a post-trib rapture. 
okay? Because I think this shows us that we're actually going to be going to heaven with him, okay? Until the time for the destruction of the Antichrist, his enemies, and the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom. Because, again, the language here is we're going to be going where he is. Now, there's a man named Douglas Moo. He is a scholar that I really respect. I love when he, if he writes, I read it. And he is a post-trib scholar, and he claims that this passage could also be inferred to meaning the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, because after all, it doesn't explicitly state where he is. The problem with that is when Christ is giving this promise, he is on earth and we know where he's going. He is going to heaven. And so where he is implies heaven and he's going to take us there. So I do think it's a passage that does point towards um, a rapture that we're brought to. Oh, Keith, you got a comment there. Well, you know, I, again, I think that that might be part of it as well because that might be the actual, what he's actually building for us. I go prepare a place for you. So I, I think you're right. It's the, it's the new Jerusalem that will be in the eternal state but temporarily will reside with him there after the rapture even. And then it's brought down um, after the millennial kingdom. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're technically right. It's the, the new Jerusalem. Yep. So anyway, does that all make sense? So heaven, though, friends, and the new Jerusalem, these things are real. They really exist. It's the heavenly realm. This isn't made up. Christ is there, and one day he's going to bring us there as well. Now, did I have any? No, I think I can move on now. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up here. I forgot what I was going to... No, notice also where it talks about seated at the right hand of God. Friends, I think this is important because remember, this is a reminder of Psalm 110.1 where there's a promise in the Trinity itself. There's conversation between Yahweh and Adonai. In fact, Larry mentioned this verse last week when we were talking about the deity of Christ. And so remember, seated at the right hand of God is the great promise that was in the Psalms some 900 years earlier that Christ ends up fulfilling when he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the only time that we see him as standing in the scriptures, ironically, is remember when Stephen is being stoned and he says he looked into heaven and who was standing for him? Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture to me because here Christ is always pictured as seated at the right hand of God, yet he stood for Stephen, one of his own, as he's being stoned. But let me point out something interesting about Psalm 110.1. And I think we can use this passage, my friends, to witness to the Jewish people that are lost. Here's why. Let me read the passage. Yahweh's declaration to my Adonai. That's literally how it reads in the Hebrew. It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Friends, there is a debate, and it shouldn't be a debate, but the, the Jewish people, because they don't believe in a trinity, they cannot have this be communication between a triune God. They can't have one person in the Godhead talking to another. So what they try to claim is that this is the people of God, Israel, recounting a past a saying or a past commandment of the Lord. The problem with that is, is there's a term, naum, and that's where I have it highlighted declaration. Do you see where it says declaration? So if you were to read it in Hebrew, it would say, um, Naum Yahweh la Adonai. Okay, so it would be the declaration of Yahweh to my Adonai. So from the Lord to the Lord. The point with that is never ever in the scriptures when we see Naum before Yahweh, is it 
in any way ever associated with human speaking. It is always God speaking. Okay, now let me give, give you some examples of this. This is a royal psalm, and it is so beautiful. Who had the first Samuel 2.30? Oh, yeah, Robert, you had that one. Now listen, you're going to hear the same idea, the declaration of Yahweh. First Samuel 2.30, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Robert, read that first portion again. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says. Yeah, and that's right where it has the says. That would be Naum. Okay? So, in fact, it would be before Yahweh because you and I, we typically have the subject and then the verb. In Hebrew, it's reverse. It's the verb and then the subject. Are you with me? So, Naum would be before Yahweh. And is Lord all caps there, right? Yeah, so that's Yahweh, yeah. So that's Naum there. So again, the point is, anytime Naum, say it three times, you own the word, Naum, anytime that's there, it's always God speaking when it's before Yahweh's name. So in other words, if you're uh, debating a Jewish person, point this passage out and you, you can tell them clearly this is not the Israelites recounting a past expression of God. It has to be God himself talking to who? Well, to my Athenine, who is the, the, the me that's speaking there? Well, it's David. So it's David's Lord. Now, how does Jesus handle this passage? And now, this is beautiful. He's the greatest apologist, obviously. Who had Matthew 22, 41 through 46? This is how Jesus handles Psalm 110.1. We're in Matthew 22, 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were attending together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Wow. So think about that. In verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? David is the king of Israel. There is no higher authority than he is. And he certainly wouldn't be calling his son of natural means his Lord. And so you're left without any options. The only way or the only person this Adonai can be is, in fact, his Lord in God. And notice, friends, what the Jews are claiming when they read this passage, again, because they have to get rid of the Trinity, they're proclaiming today, if you were going to talk to a rabbi who knew his stuff, he would say, well, this is recounting something in the past that God had spoken. But notice what Jesus is claiming. He's saying that it came to David in the spirit. Okay? And that corresponds to the language we see because, again, God is making a declaration about something that has not yet happened. So this is a prophecy in the future, not the Jewish people recounting something that God had said earlier. Are you with me? Let me give you an example of the Jews saying something earlier. Numbers 14.28. Who had that one? Did I give that one out? Oh, yeah, back there. Now, this uses Naum, but you're going to see that in the context, it's the people of Israel are associated with the, the utterance. Yeah. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Yeah, so what they're doing there is now they're recounting what the Lord had commanded them. Okay, 
But in this case that we're looking at Psalm 110.1, again, Na'um Yahweh in the context is clear. They're not recounting anything. This is brand new. This is hot off the press. This is right from God, and it's God speaking to God. So, friends, it's a great passage to use. And again, the point that Paul is using it for is that, in fact, Christ has been seated at the right hand of God, and that's where you and I will one day be with him until the time comes for him to bring the millennial kingdom and the the kingdom to Israel. Okay, now, we must think about then the things above. Colossians 3, 2 through 4, Paul continues. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So here we have an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. We are to set our minds on things above. Franeo is the verb here, and it literally means to keep on giving serious consideration to something And I want to just think about this, my friends. When we set our mind on things above, think about the fact that that's where we're going to be spending eternity. This life is like a vapor. It is passing away very quickly. And the world, and especially the postmodern Christian movement, they are telling you that you are wasting your time if you think about heavenly things. In fact, the saying is, if you're so so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, when, in fact, according to the Word of God, it's exactly the opposite. We can be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Are you with me? Oh, Bill's got something. Well, uh, if you look at the Bible and you look at the things in heaven, yeah. then you would incorporate them into your life, and, uh, and then they would be passed on or actuated politically and socially and culturally, right? Yeah. These same people that tell... Orthodox Christians that you're you're too heavenly minded, they're taking the scriptures uh, pertaining to heaven and making allegories and metaphors and applying them to political and cultural and social processes, mm-hmm. except they're twisting scriptures. Yeah. So what they're really saying, in essence, and this this has been going on for what hundreds of years, is uh, we have the right to interpret Scripture heavenly and, and whatever, and we're going to apply them the way we want, and then you're going to abide by our interpretation as they're worked out in, in, in politics and in culture and in the laws and all, all sorts of things. Sure. So I think really Christians need to, yeah, look at Scriptures and, and look at uh, you know the Bible and keep our minds on heavenly things because ultimately that's where we're going. But I think we we need to uh, apply those things in the same realm. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, let me let me stop you there. Yeah, I'm not saying in either or. What I'm saying is um, God is God over all things, including my politics, including my thought life. But if I keep my mind heavenly focused, those things become clear. And you're absolutely right. God is then the God over my politics. He changes the way I think about everything. Um, I used to, when, before I was a Christian, I didn't have nearly the same political views that I do now. Why? Because the Word of God acted upon me. So certainly, uh, in every aspect of our life, our sex lives, our money, our, you know, everything, our politics, it's all governed by us looking skyward and saying, it's not here, it's there. That's what I'm living for because this is passing away. And I'm either going to be trusting in the promises that God has given me or I'm going to be living for the world. And I think when we start living for the world, that's when our troubles occur. Yeah, we got a thought here. Yeah, 
kind of just to go back to the point you made earlier regarding the concept of Christ existing in yeah. heaven. Just that it's easy to get caught up in thinking that reality is summed up by what we see around us. Mm. But when you're saying set your mind on the things that are above yeah. and they exist above and that's part of reality. So to let yourself get humbugged and hoodwinked into just living your life wow. as if all that we had is here is not only... Um, you know, in front to God's glory, in front to what ought yeah. to be, but also just not logical and not rational and not, right. not, uh, don't you just, I mean, encourage you, set these really do exist above and you really have died with Christ and your life really is hidden with him above because he really did pay for your sins. Yeah. And that's part of reality. That's right. These things really exist. Christ is really, in, there is a really a heaven, a heavenly realm. There really will be a new Jerusalem. There really is a resurrected Christ and those who have trusted him in him are really positionally seated there you're right these are absolutely real things and you're right the world in its secular humanism says only things that we can see here and now are actually real and we yeah we have to refute those things well said yeah well let me keep moving on here i want to talk about this idea notice it says four now again let me read it again it says set your mind on things above not on the things that are on the earth for now we're coming up with a reason why for you have died and there's a second reason, and your life is hidden with Christ. Okay, notice it's with Christ. All right, now I want to talk about this idea of hidden because it came up earlier in Colossians. And remember, kryptao, it comes, I'm sorry, it's crypto, is an adjective form that we found in Colossians 2.3. I think I have a verse to read there. Yeah, who had uh, Colossians 2.1 through 3? I want to read that again. I want to make an application. Yeah, you're going to see here in Colossians 2.1.3 this idea of the all the mysteries that are they're actually hidden in Christ. And remember we talked about the concept that he is the storehouse? In fact, that would be a really good rendering of this text. So listen to what she says. He is the storehouse of the mysteries. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, so here what Paul is saying is that the mystery is Christ. Remember, these people were being tempted by mystery religions where people were saying you have to do these secret practices, ascetic practices, and enter into these rituals. These are the mysteries that will be revealed to you ecstatically, and by visions, namely that you will have protection from the stoichia, from angels. Paul is refuting that, and he is saying, no, the mysteries that have once been, that once were concealed are now revealed and they're stored up in Christ. So what's so beautiful here is you've been hidden with him. So think of him as the storehouse where all these beautiful mysteries will one day be revealed. You've been stored up with him. You've been with, because you're associated, you've died with him, and you've also been raised with him. And so when it comes to the revelation of all these things, you're going to be revealed when Christ is revealed. What is secret will be made visible. Colossians 3, 2 through 4, again, it's the same passage that we've been looking at here. But I want to focus in on this section here. This term, phanarao, it means to cause to become visible, and that is the term for revealed. And so we see a lot of examples. Typically, it has to do with something that was formerly hidden now is revealed. It can sometimes be things that are physical, but often it has to do with spiritual things or even doctrinal things. Yeah. 
Now, in light of all this talk uh, here on the side, we've been hearing lately about hyper-dispensationism, just to okay. make sure the distinction that this isn't something new or different from a different the gospel we already have, because yes. I've, I've, I've seen this verse used in, in, uh, make, for those making the hyper-dispensational yes. uh, argument. Yeah, in other words, the idea of mystery. Right, right. exactly. Yeah, let's, let's make sure we understand what the mystery is being talked about. Remember, the mystery that was once concealed is now revealed. That's how Paul uses the mystery. But remember, the idea of the gospel was present in the Old Testament. Okay, Remember, who does Paul use to prove that faith or salvation has always been by faith alone? Well, he uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4, doesn't he? So yes, at Twin City Fellowship, we are big proponents to say, no, the gospel has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Abraham even believed in the resurrection, according to Hebrews 11:19. There is no different gospel, but rather, think of the Old Testament. The first promise that we had, Genesis 3:15, the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. What we find out, the Old Testament is an unveiling and a revealing of who that Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. And so again, the prophets of the Old Testament weren't teaching just haphazard, messianic prophecies but they were teaching messianic doctrine okay but now when we come to the new testament this person who they'd been speaking about is now on the scene and so now wow and and, and so in that sense what was formerly concealed is now revealed nothing new nothing new but finally what had been promised is being realized yeah so good point so it's not the idea that we're coming up with some new revelation no this is always what's been promised in the old testament yep Okay, now I want to read some passages just to show you how this idea of revelation occurs. Um, Romans 3.21, I think. Did you have that one, Keith? Keith, I think, had that one. And then who had 1 Corinthians 4.5? You had that one? Romans 8.21. Oh, yeah, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Yeah, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been revealed or made manifest. But notice the last part of that verse, it says, but being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And again, that's speaking to what Larry was talking about. It's not that this is a new promise. It was always witnessed by what? Torah and prophets. Really, that's speaking of the whole Old Testament. So it wasn't something brand new, but what had always been promised is now revealed. So that's how it's being used there. Yeah, and you had uh, which one? Um, First Corinthians or five. Okay, good. Yeah. According to the New King James Version. All right. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Mm, yeah. So here he's even going to be revealing even our thoughts, uh, sinful things, righteous things, all things that are hidden, he will bring to light. Who also had the Second Corinthians 4.10? Second Corinthians 4.10 Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. There again is that term revealed. Uh, amen. Okay, so you can see now how that term is used throughout the New Testament. Now let me keep moving on here. Notice it's when Christ, again that's Hatan, when Christ who is our life is revealed. Whoops. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so then we have Hatan. Then Tati, okay? So the then is Tati. These are timing indicators 
when you actually see them in the scriptures, like when you have a when or a then, you know you're talking about timing. So you can ask, when will these things actually occur? Well, look for these timing indicators, okay? So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Um, let me just show you a passage where this is coming into play. And this is entered into our discussion in Second Thessalonians 2, talking about the timing of the rapture. And let me just point out something. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, if you turn your Bibles there, I want to just show you something. I think it's important for us to wrestle with. I know this is off the topic, but I wanted to mention it when we're talking about these timing indicators. Initially, friends, I was very smitten by the notion that the Second Thessalonians 2 passage, and I'm going to start in verse 1, proved that the rapture could not occur until after the Antichrist was set up in the temple. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you where these timing indicators show us the actual truth of when the revelation of the Antichrist occurs. Let me just read this passage really quick. I'm going to show you these timing indicators. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, regarding to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now let me stop there. What was happening in Thessalonica was that the Thessalonians believed that they were undergoing such severe persecution that certainly... They were living during the day of the Lord where God's wrath was being poured out. And if they were living during the day of the Lord, what did they miss? The rapture, because the rapture comes first. So both in the pre-trib understanding of eschatology and pre-wrath, the rapture comes first and then the day of the Lord. So now when we come to verse 3, the reference is back to the day of the Lord, because that was the last thing that was mentioned in verse 2. Let no one in any way deceive you for it. What is the it? It's the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now we have further description of who is that son of destruction. Well, he's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then Paul goes on, he says, Do you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now. So let me just stop at verse 6. Did you see any timing indicators, then or when? No, you didn't see any yet. So this is what's called appositional. It's describing who is the man of lawlessness. Well, he's the one who sets himself up in the temple. He's the one who exalts himself above God. Now, follow me through. Verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. So now we're getting to the timing of his revelation. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until, there's a timing indicator, haos, until he is taken out of the way. Then, there's tati, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end with the appearance of his coming. So when is the timing of the revelation of the Antichrist? Is it as he sets himself up in the temple? Not necessarily. It's when the restrainer is taken out of the way. Why? Because that's when we have these same timing indicators. We have the tati, just that's used here. Those are timing indicators. And so what we should be debating in the pre-trib versus pre-wrath debate is when does that restrainer taken out of the way? Are you with me? It's not necessarily synonymous. Yeah, Bob. I think, if I remember right, it's a while since I preached through that. Yeah. But isn't that Rao applied to Antichrist? Yes, when he's revealed. So yeah. it's interesting, if you look at Second Thessalonians 2, it's a number cool. of the terms 
that are in the New Testament applied to Christ, yep. like Fanirao, yeah. are also applied to Antichrist. So Antichrist being revealed is in a sense, wow. in appearance in some supernatural way yeah. of this uh, 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 Antichrist, who I believe has a supernatural component. Yeah, I remember, that. in fact, that slide that you actually had on those. Yeah, yeah very I mean, good. Yeah, you laid them out. Side by side. Yeah, very and good. So, uh, 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2 convinced me that Antichrist is more than just a political guy who, right. have, who gets the world to vote for him. Yeah, yeah, right, right. He's, just, <laughs> he's not some articulate guy who's better than the rest of the politicians and everybody wants him. Yeah. He is going to be supernatural in some regard yeah. and the signs and wonders that he does will convince people he's the Christ because yeah. remember when Christ came he did all these signs and wonders right well antichrist will be able to do the same and that's part of how he deceives the entire yeah, world yeah he's revealed as well right and so, so we have similar we have similar terms that are used yeah so again the point is friends i'm just showing you these timing indicators sometimes a lot of good exegesis hinges on these little nuances when is the timing indicators in this passage? It's 2 Thessalonians 2. Well, it's in verse 7 and 8, not verse 4. So again, just something to be thinking about. We see that same thing here. When are we going to be revealed with Christ? Well, when he's revealed. That's when it'll happen. Okay, let me keep moving then. And notice again that we have this term with. That is that term soon, and it has to do with association. We will be revealed with him, will be associated with him. So all of the shame that he underwent on the cross, that's going to be done away with. He is heading for glory. And because you've trusted in him and have undergone all the shame in this life, you will also be glorified with him, reign with him. It'll be a great thing, right? Messiah is coming. Okay, now let's keep moving. It says, in this hope of glory act, because we notice in light of this glory that we're heading for, there's a therefore, Okay, so in light of the glory that we're heading for, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. I want you to notice these terms uh, for sexual immorality. We have a pornea, akatharsia, that's impurity. And then we have pathos, that's desire. All of these friends have to do with sexual sin. Okay? And I want you to notice in the Greek text, they're actually all thrown forward. They're thrown forward for emphasis because I think Paul is trying to tell us something about the nature of sexual sin and how prevalent it is, how egregious it is, and how it affects the human in their totality. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about that. Um, who had 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20? Listen to what Paul says here about sexual sin. And then what I want to do after you read that passage, what I want to do is I want to make a link back to Genesis 2.24, and I want to show you what the Bible is talking about. What is, why, what is marriage about? What is it supposed to be about? What is the plan? And if we deviate from it, what are the consequences? So go ahead and read 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 
Thanks a lot. I remember uh, John MacArthur talking about this, the fact that you and I are now the new Holy of Holies for the Holy Spirit. And we are, in fact, desecrating the Holy of Holies when we're engaged in this sort of sin. I thought, wow, how insightful is that? That is exactly what's going on. This is sin against even one's own body. Now, with that concept, hold on to that. Let's go back to Genesis 2.24. I hope I gave that passage out to somebody. Oh, good. Yeah. Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Yeah, so they shall become one flesh now. Okay? So that's the plan. One man, one woman, and they're going to become one flesh. They're going to be unified, right? Now, did I give Genesis 4:23 through 24? What I want to show you is how a man named Lamech, when he starts deviating from this plan, that's in chapter 4 of Genesis, that is going to lead to the exponential increase of wickedness on the earth and finally the flood that we see like in Genesis 6 onwards. So read uh, Genesis 4:23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Yeah, so listen to this. Right away, this Lamech, he's a descendant of Cain. And he says, first of all, we're tipped off because he says to his wives, plural. Well, wait a minute. Back in Genesis 2.24, says to have one wife... One man, one wife, become one flesh. Well, now he has two wives. He's deviating from God's plan. And therefore, he's sinning, isn't he? But what's more, notice down further, remember earlier on in Genesis, in fact, I think it's in 4, yeah, 4.15, remember Cain is going to be banished from the Lord's presence, but he's concerned he's going to be taken out. He's going to be killed, right, because he's murdered his brother. And so in verse 4.15, Genesis 4.15, So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And who will do it? Well, God will, and it's going to be sevenfold. What is Lamech boasting in? If anybody hurts him, it's going to be seventy-sevenfold. Okay? So he's deviating in the plan of marriage. He's deviating. uh, He's taking the law into his own hands. And so he is being exceedingly wicked. And so that's why when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we in fact see that the sinful nature of man is such that God has decided he's going to wipe us out. Okay? But now remember, now Matthew 19.5, Jesus talks about this very thing. In fact, let me just point it out because I want you to see how Jesus is just borrowing right from Genesis 2. And he is saying any deviation from what God has ordained, one man, one woman, is in fact sinful because he reiterates Genesis 2.24. So Matthew 19.5, Jesus says, Have you not read? Remember, he's debating with the Pharisees. He says, Have you not read? This is Matthew 19.4 through 5. Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So again, any deviation. So if somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know, that prohibition against homosexual marriage, yeah, we see it in Leviticus, and I see it in the New Testament passages, and like in Romans chapter 1, but where does Jesus talk about it? Because remember the red-letter Christians, only what Jesus says matters, right? Well, Matthew 19 right here. Because any deviation that Lamech deviated by just having one extra wife, and that's sinful. In fact, it led to the downfall of humanity and the flood. Okay? So Jesus is reiterating the same promise. If you deviate from that, that is how God created us. Now, 
why is this such a big issue with God? It's not only for our own benefit, but also for his glory as we see. Did I give the Ephesians 5, 28 through 32? Did I give that? Oh, yeah, back there. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> so Ephesians 5, 28 to 33. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Yeah, stop right there. Paul is talking about a mystery that from the beginning of time, when a man and a woman would get together, it's always been a picture. It's more than just man and woman. It's about Christ and the church. And so every marriage that's ever occurred where you have the union of a man and a woman, this is a picture, and it was a picture to the world of Christ coming for his church. So you can see, friends, when people enter into relationships that God has not ordained, what are they really doing? They're stealing from that picture that God has ordained from the beginning. It's interesting, I had a professor at Northwestern, Dr. Ardell Kennedy, and he pointed out something that was very interesting to me. If you look through a lot of things in life, for instance, slavery, in some sense, we all, remember, we believe in what's called the analogical use of language. God condescends and he speaks to us, And the different things that we have in this world often point to his glory. For instance, we know what it is to have a slave and a master relationship, and yet that is actually pointing to the ultimate master and all of you and I who are believers as slaves. And and so, in other words, these things in life God takes and he uses them to point to his glory. That's exactly what he's stating about marriage, the union between one man, one woman. And so when we deviate from that or we sin against that, we're, in fact, stealing from his glory. Yeah, Barbara's got something. Um, one of the things that I think people forget, and I, I you know, was raised Catholic where marriage was really sacred, but I think one thing in the evangelical church that bothers me is the lack of seriousness about divorce. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, who gets up every morning and says, I'm in love, good Lord, after you've been married a certain <laughs> length of time, it's... <laughs> 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 you, 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 you had a chance for a rebuttal there, Mike. <laughs> you know, you need God's grace. But I sure. think um, in Malachi, what it says is, you know, why does God hate divorce? And he says he is looking for godly offspring. And I don't think people realize how difficult divorce is on children. And so yeah. it's so important for us to understand the sacredness of marriage. Amen. Well said. Yeah. Well, yeah your rebuttal. <laughs> I've always been taken by that one flesh idea. And uh, you can see Western civilization at least in a economic political sense, looks at the husband and wife as one. In other words, the special status that marriage has, you know, if you're talking about the husband, you know, legally you're talking about the wife too. That's well said, yeah. But the one flesh thing also is reflected in the resurre- resurrected flesh of Christ, this new body. 
And so believers will be of that same flesh. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a new life, a new um, existence, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think we can, uh, you know, if you want to extend the marriage uh, idea to the relationship of the church to Christ, um, this idea of resurrection flesh um, could be one of the ideas. Mm. Wow, well said. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. And you didn't even use your time for a rebuttal too much. <laughs> that was very kind of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, you guys. Those are great comments. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting. Oh, let me just back up. Notice where it says that here sin is idolatry. That's, you're, that's the theme that I want to talk about now. Colossians 3, 5 through 7, uh, Paul continues, says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. That's what we just read. Impurity, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay? So the question I want to ask is why? Why is idolatry... Or why is this type of sin regarded as idolatry? And remember, the definition of idolatry really means worshiping another god. Okay, That's really, bottom line, is you're worshiping something other than the god that has revealed himself in the scriptures or by his word. Okay, Now, let's examine that a little bit closer, though. Why is sin idolatry? And I've got a passage that really talks about this. Hebrews three twelve through 18. Yeah, Brian, you had that one. Yeah. And listen to the very end of this passage because you're going to see why is it that the Israelites sinned according to the writer of Hebrews. And you're going to see it's because of a lack of faith. Hebrews 3, 12 through 18. Yeah. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There, because of unbelief. So here the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. They grumbled against the Lord at Meribah, Numbers 20. They didn't believe the report of the spies. Remember, Caleb and Joshua are the only spies that actually give a good report. The people sin against God. Why, ultimately? Because they don't really believe him or his promises. And so what is idolatry and what is sin? Anytime I engage in any sin, what I'm really saying is I'm trying to get all I can here and now because I don't really trust that these promises are coming. And so therefore, what I am engaged in is idolatry because once I do that, what I am saying is, The God that I believe in is less than the one that's revealed. And that's exactly why Paul is making this point with idolatry. It is as good as idolatry. Yeah, Keith. I think that this concept is very uh, strong on us and incumbent on us to look at in our own lives, especially in light of the economic crises and the pressures that we have, because there's nothing that's affected a Christian in this church that hasn't been filtered through the hand of a loving God. Mm. And for us to grumble and complain that our work isn't going as well or our finances aren't going as well or whatever isn't going as well as we want them to 
instead of being grateful for yeah. the God who's given to us, yeah. in the same way Israel was in the wilderness, they came out yeah. through mighty works, and we've been saved by the mighty blood of Jesus. That's right. Yeah. And yet to sit and grumble because God won't take care of us now, right. he won't lead us on into glory because I don't believe him. I need to take it into my own hands. That's something I struggle with all the time. Yeah. And it's the we same concept as in my life. I feel like an Israelite. I fail here, fail here, fail here because yeah. the same the same temptation to take it into my own hands and do it my way because I don't think he's going to take care of me That's is right. very big in me. Yeah, well said. And it is in all of us. And, yeah, that is a form of... I think, Bob, you get, he has something. I don't have my Greek text in front of me, but I'm looking at this consider. I see a note yeah. in my margin, and it says, uh, put to death, is it so is it like to mortify? Therefore, consider... Yeah, yeah, it would be that sort of idea. Um, I don't know if it isn't an imperative. Who, does anybody have a Greek text? Oh, it is imperative errors. Yeah, so it would have that connotation, I would think. It's a command. Yeah, so this would be related to some of the discussions we've had lately about what does it mean, how exactly do you mortify the flesh? Yeah. Or how, how do you actually do this? Yeah, yeah. And so Paul, if you look at Romans 6 and another, many other places, he talks about that. Mm. You know, don't present your members, you're dead. Yeah, we're dead to sin. Consider yourself to be dead. yeah. And so, as we've been saying, the means of grace are designed to put Christ and what he did for us in front of our minds and hearts yeah. daily. Right. And so that when Paul, for example, in Colossians 2, reminds them that they were baptized, yeah. he gives them a ground to consider himself dead right. because right. you buried the old man. And so keep that in front of you. So. It isn't like there's some ascetic process of self-abasement that's going to make all these desires go away. Right. Because they don't just go away. Yeah. But there is the gospel, and there's the word of God, and there's our fellowship, and there's the truth, that if we keep putting these things in front of ourselves, our faith grows. We become cognizant of the promises of God, and by believing God and his promises... The Lord is at work changing us from the inside out, and pretty soon these things are going away. Yeah, yeah. And and I love that because the idea of the means of grace, friends, um, that we talk about in Acts 2.42, the Word of God, the Lord's Supper, a fellowship and prayer, like Bob is saying is when we undergo these things, what we are doing is we're remembering constantly, and it's always about remembering. The Israelites had to remember. We have to remember constantly who this God is, and what he has done for us. So in light of that, what are we believing? We're believing the one who is revealed in the scriptures, and therefore we're living for him and not for these things today. And uh, that's exactly right. I think that's what was revolutionary to me when I started understanding the means of grace rather than, boy, you're right. Otherwise, you lean towards some sort of ascetic practice whereby you end up trying to whip it out of yourself just by sheer willpower. And, friends, we can't do it by sheer willpower um, that's self-made religion, and it helps. It helps not with the indulgence of the flesh, as we saw um, in Colossians 2:23. So, thanks for that. And now, um, how much time are we? We're getting close. Let me just. I'll, I'll try to finish up this here. Um, of course, the wrath of God is coming upon all those of disobedience. The other thing is, what is its punishment? Did I give out Revelation 21:8? Did I even give that passage out? No, I probably didn't. Let me just read Revelation 21:8 then. Um, I think we all know this passage, but it's a good reminder. What is the 
the punishment upon idolatry. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, of course, friends, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, and so were some of you but you were washed with the blood of Christ. You're with him now, and that is the blessed hope. Yes, all of us have been idolaters, but when you trusted in Jesus Christ, he nailed that offense to the cross that has been blotted out, past, present, and future, and you are secure. But friends, in light of those things, we are to be dead to sin and therefore alive to the things of God. We have left the realm of sin then is what we find out here. And notice it says, and in them you once walked... That is the the thing. These things that are the things of disobedience. Let me just put up this last segment here. Walking. Remember in Colossians two six through seven, it talked about walking in Christ. We don't have time to get into that passage, and we are now. Um, oh, who had Colossians two thirteen? Let me just point this out. Does somebody have that passage? Yeah, back there. I'm sorry. Let me just read this one. Because remember, I want I want one thing. I want to drive home to you is this idea of living in one sphere versus another. We are now in the sphere of Christ, but we used to walk in the sphere of ungodly things. So listen to uh, Colossians 2.13. And when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Yeah, so he made us alive in him. So I'm going to show that, that last verse, again, or that verse you just read, It's kind of our memory verse. So here's kind of my, the way I view this section here. Praise be to God, because think about our old life. We were dead in trespasses, and therefore we were dead to Christ. We were associated with trespasses and sin, and that's all we did. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead as a doornail spiritually. And by the way, friends, that is total depravity. That is, in fact, why we need the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we cannot respond to the things of God. Why? Because we're dead sinners, and that's all we do is sin. But in in light of that, we were dead to Christ. But now this is our new life because of what Jesus did for us. We are now dead in Christ, the difference being we are with him, and we've been crucified with him, and therefore now we are dead to trespasses. And so in light of that great, great reality, we are to live that way. We are to walk that way. And so, you know, one of the key passages, I think, of that this whole section, and I think it would be a great memory verse, is what she just read, Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, who did it? Who, who actually saved us? God did. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Friends, you and I were dead, going to hell, but God, who is merciful, he was the one who made us alive. And so all praise goes to him for these things. Um, yeah, with that, I guess we're out of time um, but it was fun. I love the discussion kind of as we went, and I actually timed it out so we're not, it's not like 11 o'clock, so that's not too bad. <laughs> okay, we'll see you guys upstairs, or my friends.